<laughs> Torah topics. Shabbat shalom, everybody. Shalom. Shabbat shalom. Today's official lesson. Lesson officially is Parshat Kitisa, which is a Parshat that's... <clears throat> It's, there's a lot going on in here because it's, uh, it has the what's called the Cheta Egel, the sin of the golden calf. So that raises a lot of questions. We'll see what we can do with these. I have I have a list that was sent to me earlier. <laughs> well, it was like a group list that was sent out to the group. But yeah, All right, let's yeah let's work on these. So. Let's um just just as a formality. So the name of the parsha Kitisa means as you lift up or when when you take or when you the word the root of it is lift up. Okay. So the people of Israel are told to contribute exactly a half shekel of uh, money, also known as silver, because. Biblically, there is not anything else that means money. To the sanctuary. I had to throw that in. Oh, that's <laughs> fake cash is fake cash. Got it. <clears throat> Credit-based finance and stuff really didn't exist. Doesn't exist. I mean, you could make loans, but that was the extent of it. You could borrow money, but it would always be something you could weigh out. <laughs> On a scale. Mm -hmm. That's what a shekel means, a certain amount of weight. All right. Instructions are also given regarding the making of the sanctuary's water basin, including or anointing oil and incense. The wise-hearted artisans, Bezalel and Aholiav, are placed in charge of the sanctuary's construction. The people are once again commanded to keep Shabbat. All good so far. Sounds like it's all going to work out. Oh, but there's a glitch. <laughs> when it's a Moshe, it's a, it's a glitch, right? There's a trouble. Uh, mm -hmm. Moshe does not return when expected from Har Sinai, Mount Sinai. Then the people make a golden calf. It's interesting that they would say the people make. But, you know, I guess I see where they're getting that. How about a golden calf is made and worshipped? And so Hashem proposes to destroy the errant nation, but Moses intercedes on their behalf and descends from the mountain carrying the tablets of the testimony engraved with Ten Commandments, seeing the people dancing about their idol. He breaks the tablets, destroys the golden calf, has the culprits put to death. And then he returns to Hashem and to say, if you do not forgive them, Blot me out from the book you have written. And God forgives, but says this will, that the effect of their sin will be felt for generations. At first, Elohim proposes to send his angel along with them, but Moshe insists that God himself accompany his people to the promised land. Moshe prepares a second set of tablets, once more ascends a mountain where God reinscribes the covenant on these second tablets. Up on the mountain, Moshe is also granted a vision of the divine 13 attributes of mercy. 
And so radiant is the face of Moshe upon his return that he must cover it with a veil, which he removes only to speak with God and to teach God's laws to the people. All right, so that's a nutshell of Kitisad, the Parsha we're working with. What we have is a list of questions. Um, first question, right? Did Moshe specify how long he would go up the mountain? Right. So we were reading the uh, Torah portion, and I feel like, and it could just be the fact that I was influenced by the podcast I was listening to, um, but I feel like he did, but we couldn't actually find where he told them that he was going to be gone for 40 days or 40 nights. Yeah, it doesn't say in this parsha, but it says in another one. He told them 40 days. And okay. the technical problem that happened here is he told them 40 days, but they counted the first day and they should not have. So technically it came across as it's day 40, but it was really 39 according to that counting. I gotcha. Literally by that close. And they gave um, up. And they gave up. Yeah. Well. And there, there was also this, this idea, according to the podcast, that Aaron, when he went ahead, went through with collecting their gold and putting it in the fire so as to make the golden calf, he was actually buying time. Uh acknowledging the fact that you know the he's just not made it back down yet moses i don't know that i agree with that commentary on account of how scripture kind of portrays him and what he's doing yeah i know does that make sense okay so yes it does and it turns out that there's quite a bit of commentary to that effect, like, oh, well, they didn't really want to commit idolatry, and oh, well, it really wasn't what it looked like, and oh, well, it really – he was trying to buy some more time, and and, and they and they, they already killed Hur. Hur. That's, that's in the Midrash. Is that so, trying to uh, – The like Hur that was – Figurehead for the um, mixed multitude that went with them, or something. No, Hor is is a is a name that appears in other parshot, but doesn't anymore. And all, all I'm trying to we'll get back to Hor. So all I'm trying to say is that there's a quite a bit of like what might be imaginative uh, approaches to how this thing went down. <laughs> That's what you're hearing. That's what you're hearing. And right. one of the imaginative he, approaches was that, oh, well, they just, they, 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 you know, it really wasn't that kind of idolatry. It was just they wanted a leader. Right. Sure. <laughs> and then another one is, well, Aharon, when he told them to, you know, bring me the gold, he really was not wanting to make the golden calf. It was just to buy time, which right. is what, they, what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. That's the one, yeah. So the issue is, I mean, just like in the Midrash, you know, you hear these, you have a story about something that's supporting the scripture, but is there any hint 
in this in the actual text that means that right that's the or that's the question because i mean if you look at what if if um my question would be i mean this is about the very point you're making if it were true that Aharon was just trying to what delay, you know, as a delay tactic, right? Right. Why would he say, "Here is your"? He specifically says, "Here is your God." That's another one. Why would he say that? Why would he not reprimand Israel? There's a lot of questions. I mean. Why would he not say, what kind of a, you know, foolish idea are you bringing up here? <laughs> right? Why would he not say that? I not only this. Like the reason, you know, it's, it's just a cop-out, but I feel like the reason that would be given is that his, if he had responded in that way, he would have been killed, perhaps? I agree. That's That was the, that's that's actually part of this trained to thought, yeah, is that, well, you know, he was fearing for his life because Khor was already killed because he refused to make the golden calf. Mm. That, that, that is in some of the Midras there. And this story, though, this, this, this doesn't make any sense at all. I'm trying to find where this is. Um, it must have been up a little bit farther. It's the beginning of 32. Yeah, okay. Right. So, so um, Moshe confronts Aharon. What did these people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? Question to Aaron, right? Right. So, wouldn't that be the, like, totally wide open opportune moment to say okay look I mean they had already killed Hur and they were threatening to kill me and whatever you know I needed to I needed to buy some time (laughs) (laughs) he doesn't say that I mean really he says oh you know don't be so upset you know the people likes to do evil And they said, make a God to lead us. Make a God. So the bias, that predilection I was talking about, where they do want to kind of, there is a train of thought that wants to make a sort of a, sort of a case for like an excuse for this, where... Yeah. Oh, they didn't really want to do the idolatry. They just wanted a leader. Remember? I just said that a few <laughs> minutes ago. Look, it's in the translation. <laughs> it's built into the translation. That excuse. So this Hebrew says, and they said to me, make for us Elohim that will go in front of us. So I guess that's where they get it. That's what that will walk in front of us, because this Moshe, the the man that brought us up out of Mitzrayim, we have no idea what happened to him. 
And so I said, whoever has gold, take it off. Why wouldn't he say it right here? I did this because I was trying to find a way to, whatever, wait, stall tactic. Right. Right. Yeah. Like, what was the gold supposed to be doing if he wasn't going to make it? What other are there? Well, why wouldn't he say it here? And he says this really amazing comment in the next verse. No, it's not the next verse. Yeah, it is. It's in this verse. <laughs> so they 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 broke off the pieces of gold and they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire and out jumped this calf. <laughs> so that that's another thing. Uh, there's this idea that this this calf actually came out and it had the attributes of a living cow. Like I, I think it was mentioned on the podcast something about it yeah. like raising grass like a cow would graze ga- grass. And yeah, that. all of that's all in the midrash. There's quite a bit of detail. The thing was moving. It was like it had you know movements and life in it and stuff. Yes, yeah, so that's in there. It's in the midrash. That is not what I'm reading here. <laughs> well, the takeaway from this is there is quite a bit of um, commentary in what you could call literature that's with the commentary that seems to have the idea or that has the objective to try to explain away at least some of the culpability. Mm-hmm. And that's what you are picking up on. Yeah. Okay. That it wants to say, well, you know, I'm trying. How would you say he didn't really want to do it, but he did it? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like Aharon didn't really want to do it, but he did it. He did it begrudgingly. Maybe. Yeah. It's a subtlety. Anyway, it goes on to say, and with the mo- in the clearest of terms, and this is where I've drawn the line that I don't uh, accept the blame reducing explanations. It says right here that Hashem sent a plague to the people because they made because of the making of this uh, calf that and then it's you know what's really clear I mean if you could see really understand the grammar of what this, this sentence is doing Hashem sent a plague to the people on account of they made a calf, but it has a qualifier clause at the end, which uh, Haron made. <laughs> That's what those words mean. And it says translate here, right? For what they did with the calf that Haron made. Right. Aaron made. That kind of, uh, well, actually, it touches a little bit into another question about, was this something like, you know, Moses comes down, says those who are still faithful to Elohim, yod heh vav come come towards me. And then he sent them out to smite everyone who partook of the worshiping of the calf and, and the making of it and such. Was that all done there? Um, how do I say It's that? verse 26. Yeah, you're talking about verse 26. The, uh, yeah. 
the podcast specified that, well, we already know that it's impossible to lawfully take a life unless there's a trial. So was this all done by trial, according to Torah law? Or was this, like, as it is kind of read here, just, you know, everybody smiting everybody? You know what I mean? Because and the reason there's a tie in there is because it also depicts not only uh, people being killed by the, the Levites with weapons, but also by God sending a plague, which would be killing those who went to trial and got off, but were actually guilty. I wasn't aware of, of any kind of a trial. That's, in this. that's what the Rashi podcast was saying. That there was? That there was, yeah. And that uh, those who, you know, there were not enough witnesses to specify that this person uh, was seen worshiping the idol, then, you know, they were killed off by this plague that God gave. But, I mean, they got a point in that you're not supposed to take someone's life without that trial and without witnesses. So I feel like there is a little credit in that particular view. It's simply, it's just that it's difficult to read that if all you have is this text. Because it doesn't talk about any trials here. In general, that is a really important uh, principle of law. And many of the times in the Torah where it says, if you do this such and such, it's you be, you know, there are a few things like huge transgressions, sins. They actually have a death penalty, but none of that stuff was done without a without a court and without warnings. And if that's what they're trying to say, then yes, I have heard that. <laughs> yes, I'm aware of this. Right. That's an important part of it is that there's a, like a due process. Right. One thing that's happening here is it's this one's a harder one for me to analyze because there it's a little bit like the situation the situation you might find like on a on a vessel or a ship you know it's not really a chartered nation completely hasn't been fully brought into where they're supposed to go. Um, it could be. You could have had a, some kind of a, like a portable, you know, tribunal <laughs> thing. <laughs> it could have happened here, and that there's nothing that's stopping that. My question is, you know, it's just a, it's just an obvious question. How did Aharon survive that? <laughs> you know? Oh man, good I didn't think about that. That is a really good question because, by all rights, I don't think he should have. Yeah, I mean, of all, you know, if you did have a tribunal, you're bringing down, you know, the formalities of this accusation, then how on earth could he, you know, survive that? Well, there's a very interesting clue that's in Sefer Devarium. Let me see if I can. The Book of Deuteronomy. Sefer Devarium, Book of Deuteronomy, right. I was. Um, I don't know if I we ought to find it in there, but I can find it here. 
It's just Deuteronomy 9.20. He's recounting this entire episode. Deuteronomy chapter 9. Let's go there. So I started down the mountain, which was ablaze with fire, and the two tablets of the covenant were in my hands. And then I saw how you had sinned against Hashem. You had made yourselves a mold, you know, a golden calf. You had been too, you had been very quick to go or stray from the path that Hashem had commanded you or upon you. And this does, this is plural. So you all had made, you plural had made yourself an egel, masicha, molten calf. And so I gripped tablets, flung them from away with my hands and smash them <laughs> before your eyes and it goes down a couple more verses and moreover Hashem was angry enough with Aharon to have destroyed him so this really might be the answer to my question <laughs> it really might be how yeah. did he how did he survive that Moses interceded for him specifically for Aaron yeah, it's really got its own verse in the Torah that de- deals with this topic. <laughs> well, Moses is also the only reason the Israelites weren't utterly destroyed, right? Technically, you're right about that. He said, "I'll destroy these people." Hashem said that, and make a greater nation from you. Nation from you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Moses said, no, don't do that. <laughs> Which, uh, there's another interesting thing that was brought up, is is this idea of the two tablets being made of sapphire. And not only of them being made out of sapphire, but they're not the typical tablets we generally think of, but rather they're like cube-shaped. You ever hear of that? Yeah, well, I haven't heard the cube shape, but I have heard that he was able to throw them because technically they didn't have any weight because they were supporting themselves. They were like weightless. When you think about it, big, heavy, you know, stone tablets, how would you throw them? It kind of fits, you know, depends on how small they are. He's just ushering them down the mountain? Yeah, he just guides them. And, and the way that's worded, and, and I'm trying to find the place where we were. I was going to ask you where the idea of it being a cube came from, but I guess that's not really going to tell much. Let's uh, let's find the we would have let's hold off on that question because I don't know where that verse is. We have to find that verse. Okay, look for that verse, and when we get to it. So the question originally where we started was: Did Moshe specify how long he would be up the mountain? The answer is yes, he did, but it doesn't say in this verse. I think we can probably we can probably find it with just a moment here. That's on the mountain forty days. All right. So the question is, where does he tell the people that he would be up there forty days? Right. That one. Right. 
I am not finding it. So that would mean that they're getting that from the Midrash. If we don't find it. Somewhere the Moshe says, I'm going to go and be gone 40 days. Right? That's what we're looking for. Yes. I don't think it happens. Because right before this, they were... The 70 came up and they had... Yeah, they had the, like a... A dinner or something? Some, or? Yeah, right. I know they had some kind of a dinner. And now we have the sapphire appearance in that passage, right? What? What? Yeah. Yeah, I'm Where? pretty sure the sapphire appears in the passage Karina's talking about. Yeah. They saw the guy oh, Israel. Oh, the pavement. Yeah, the sapphire stone, right? So that's part of that passage in Exodus 24. That's referring to what Moses is standing on, not the tablets themselves. Okay. Well, and then they saw the God of Israel, and under God's of Israel's feet was something like sapphire stone pavement. I see. If you want to put it in context. I really thought it was in here somewhere that he tells, the Hashem tells Moshe to tell the people you're going up. Right, I thought that's the way it was, uh, the way it happened. Pretty sure it was a you know, coming to the mountain. It was kind of an important sign in Exodus, way back in Exodus chapter three, so that he would be going up a mountain. You know, would certainly go along with that. <laughs> well, hasn't he gone up the mountain before at this point? That's what gets a little hard to follow. Yes, there was another one. There was another story, and it had to do with the one you just brought up. And that one, some um, commands, some words were actually brought down, and there wasn't like this golden calf episode. Well, I'm just wondering if he's gone up the mountain before for 40 days, 40 nights, and now here we are. He's gone up the mountain again. I see, and they had counted the number of days and expected it to match, right? That's what we're thinking. Yes, that might be the explanation. But we do have some other questions. Let's let's leave that for a research project to know if um, where does it say that he told them 40 days, right? That's what we're working on. Right. There's another really important question you have. This uh, could the the concept of whoops <laughs> the numbering yeah the numbering all right so what exactly is this uh, question well while we were reading we were you know he says oh give the shekel there's a part here where it talks about um, tell Israel to hand over a shekel and by doing so you'll number them but. For whatever reason, both Daniel and I both were kind of like, I thought that there was some kind of command or or precedent about how we should should not remember the actual people of Israel. That is correct. So that's all right. So the first detail to or be aware of is. It is a half shekel. <laughs> it's a half <laughs> shekel. 
So everybody brings, and it doesn't matter who, it doesn't matter, you know, rich, not, so rich, whatever. Everybody brings a half shekel. Rashi said, that's a little, that's about the amount of, roughly, the amount of um, silver that's in a 25 cent, you know, like an American quarter from <laughs> pre-19. Before the before the silver was pilfered out, and when it was really a coin, it was that amount of silver uh, from 1964 and earlier. So back when quarters were money? Right. Back when quarters were money, it's about 25 cents of then. <coughs> All right. So that's like, you know, I I think you can exchange between five and seven or eight, I don't know, current uh, FRN dollars <laughs> for a silver quarter. So, you know, it just rough rounded off to like five bucks <laughs> in today. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Something like that. Everybody puts a five, you know, $5 half shekel in and you count the sh- half shekels. So we know there's a story in First Samuel I think it's in first samuel where the king david wanted to number the people and they try to talk him out of it yeah and it was a terrible mistake so are we asking if it's a bad idea to number the people like the king wanted to do or is are we asking why it's a bad idea <laughs> do you have a question um we're asking if there's inconsistency because god is requesting that they number themselves when before or not before, but in the future we see, I guess. Okay. That there is, not- you can, all right, so that's the thing. Really, it's a subtle point, but it's super important, okay? And it's numbering of people is an intrinsically flawed idea. It's spiritually a problem, and that's why um, it says... It has to do with how you do it, all right? It has to do with how how it's done. Is it because when you're assigning a number to an individual, that individual becomes um, almost dehumanized a little bit? Yes, it has to do with that. It does. (laughs) It does. Like, this is someone made in the image of God, and, and you're taking value away from them by serializing them you serialize them and taking value away plus you're also warping your own sense of value and importance and that was the issue with the king you shouldn't and joab try to tell him don't do that the lord is not you know and i i think i'm trying to i'm just thinking of how it's worded in english all right so it's second samuel King said to Joab, the captain of the host, which was with him, go now through all the tribes from Dan all the way to Beershava and number the people that I may know the number of the people. So he says, now the Lord your God add unto the people how many soever they be a hundredfold and that the eyes of the Lord may the king may see it. But why does the Lord the king delight in this thing? So he really understood the problem. <laughs> really, he really understood the problem. Mm. 
And if you read through this passage in Second Samuel, I thought it was first. It isn't. All right. So um, a major um, retribution, a major problem comes as a result of doing this sin. And it's called a sin. He said, I, David said unto the Lord, I have sinned greatly in that I have done. And now I beseech you, O Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant. For I have done like a beniscalti. I have done foolish. So this is different. Now it's in this verse. If we look at Exodus 30, 12, it says, tally up, lift up the rosh. Wow, that means the head of the children of Israel for their like um, accounting. And they will give, every person will give they're saying it's like a, they're calling it a ransom for a soul to Hashem in the counting. But the important clause in this one is, in order that there will not be in them or with them a plague while they are counted. One thing. Thank you, Brian. Oh, the idea is that counting them might make a plague among them, but we have to count oh, them. Right. So the only the only legitimate way I'm trying I'm trying to find the words for this because it is a very subtle thing. Sure. It is somehow or another, as just as Daniel's pointing out, it is extremely undignified to have a. You know, like a finger pointed at you, like you're being counted by some other person. Like a social security number. And at one time, yeah, like that, exactly. And I saw one of the old cards. I must have been 12, you know, I was a very young person. And I saw it, it was very clearly emblazoned on that card. And it said, not to be used for identification purposes. Yeah. <laughs> I saw it. Yeah, I've seen that too. It was someone that was laying like laying on a like a table or some kind of a counter or something. I don't know whose it was, but I I saw it. I, I didn't even touch it. It just my attention was drawn to it, not to be used for identification purposes. And so, yeah, that's a whole political, you know, that's a situation right there. And if anybody hasn't felt like their dignity was being demeaned and kind of crushed because of being treated like a number, then you're really, <laughs> maybe we've got a point pointed object. We can put your ear, poke it through your ear and into the door for uh. <laughs> <laughs> That's a reference to another Torah that says if, if a person really wants to be a slave they can they can right so <clears throat> yeah so there's something undignified and that's what if we go back to second Samuel that's what the general was telling the king is you you don't go out and like point your finger at people and number them like that it's a spiritually problematic thing to do for the reason you said 
Daniel. That's why he's it's undignified or whatever he said. How so, interesting. It is interesting because the method on how it's done is everything in Exodus 30. It's everything. It's a method on how it's done. So you can get like a shadow of the account by counting the half shekels. But nobody is lowered down to being just a number. To doing to being just like a number or a numbered. Yeah, a numbering, right? In every one of these senses that's in the scripture, in the Torah, and we are coming up on the so called well, after Leviticus, we're coming up on what's called the Book of Numbers. <laughs> <laughs> but all of those were done with a half shekel. They're done with some kind of accounting. Um, workaround. A workaround is a good way to call it. It is a workaround. It's extremely intriguing. <laughs> and you can't help from connecting it with this thing we talked about earlier, which is the people in the state level, you know, wanting to expand the power, right? Mm. This has been an expansion of power over, like, the dignity of the soul. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm not and really sure what we do about that. What to do about it is a separate question, right? Well, yeah. <clears throat> you have to, it's a, you know, we were discussing a little bit prior, just before we started, the history of Germany and, and the rise of the Nazi party in Germany and, and what that means to pe people who were Jewish, you know, and how, how would you have, what would you do? What were your options? What would what should have been done, what could have been done, etc. Right. So it's not the intent to take this podcast into into that question, but it's very similar because you know people had to make an individual would prayer, you know, individual choice, yeah, on actions, right? And it's similar to that because it is definitely, it's definitely degrading. It is a, it is. <laughs> The only reason, and it says right here that it, it does not bring a negif, and a negif is a striking or a blow. It's a some kind of a consequence that comes from this demeaning act of numbering. The only way to work around that is a good way is to bring in the half shekels, and we can count those, right? Right. <sighs> Almost like... Like when you're bringing children up, I feel strongly that children will only aspire to the degree and level that you expect them to, right? And so I almost feel like if you're going to treat people like animals, I don't think it's it's out of it's uh, out of the realm of possibility that you're going to have a group of people who've been treated like animals start to act like animals. Right. So uh, an analog to that is to treating people like chattel or, or some kind of property. Right. right. All true. There's a lot of truths to that. 
you know, we know from the Book of Kings, right? The, the 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 bad kings that rose up after the time of Solomon. They it says they caused Israel to sin. It's the same idea. Yeah. They're being like an influence on the people. Definitely. So let's go to the next question. Um, the answer to this one is the concept of not numbering the children of Israel means making a small donation, a half shekel, results in something which can be counted without without a negative, which is that word that like a you know a, a penalty, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. That I feel like the whole program could be done just on that, and you know the de, the undignified, dehumanizing way that people at the state level relate to the people now. Yeah. Well, that's. Uh, I think you're right. I think that's uh, something we don't necessarily have to go through in this podcast. It's Do you, politics all over. Do you think it's tied to free will at all? Because it, if there was the okay, everybody come up, throw in your shekel, and then we're going to count the half shekels or whatever, and yeah, see how many people we have. But like, what if I didn't want to throw my half shekel in? You know, actually, I had a similar idea in that this does kind of go off of the honor system. There was this um, this other, I'm trying to remember the specifics, this other uh, story in scripture uh, from the book of Genesis, something about a battle, and Rashi's commentary was talking about how people could be dismissed. Um, and there was this idea of like, if you're in, if you're living in sin and you're expecting to be killed in this battle, you're able to kind of discreetly leave the scene um, as a means of like saving face. Or you know, saving life, yeah. your own honor intact in front of others or something. And that's almost, right, yeah, yeah. It, it's almost as if God has this individual partnership with you, where like you're you're in this as far as you're allowing yourself to go. So what you're exploring <laughs> is the option that someone may not bring the half shekel just because for some reason. Yeah, I don't. So what? Don't, they yeah. don't want to be counted. I don't know. <laughs> well, they, see, that's the difference, though, because once you give the check out, you not you're not being counted. That's the thing. You gotta you gotta really see the difference. You don't want your half shekel counted. That could be something different, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, maybe there really is I mean. a difference. There is a real difference, though. If I say I don't want to be counted, okay, I don't want to be counted. I, you know. But if you say, I don't want my half shekel to be counted, that's a, like a different motivation. <laughs> it is a different motivation. Yeah. <laughs> From what I understand, the commandment was they were supposed to bring the half shekel. Like, so that's a good well, legal question. 
what if somebody didn't do it? <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> well, ahead. didn't they didn't they count them or something for for war? There was some kind of I don't remember specifically now, but I feel like we've read it in recent weeks where they were like, "Oh, count all the men who are able to go like, out in war." Yeah, between the ages of twenty and fifty or something. Yeah. Any of those countings, they 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 use some kind of a workaround like this. Nobody's out, you know, standing there with a clipboard and pointing it a lot. You know, Someone and making a clicker. <laughs> right. Nobody's doing that. Not it's not being directly tallied like mm. that. And there is something degrading about that. It is true. I mean, we're picking up on something super important, and you can see where, you know, over the years, and it, it gets in too much politics stuff, and it's not just USA. I mean, it's, it's everywhere right now in our time. You can see where governments have really imposed and have, have crossed the line of this, this uh, kind of thing, which... This is the respect for the word and the fear of God. Okay, so we're going to the Sabbath question. All right, this can... is where it gets fun. <laughs> the Sabbath is a perpetual covenant versus the Sabbath made for man rather than man for the Sabbath. The secondary question was... The specific day and doesn't matter which, right? <laughs> All right. So what do you have to deal with these in two different parts? How would you ask the first question? Um. So in this in this uh, you know Torah portion, we're reading about how the the uh, Shabbat is to be an eternal ordinance, right? Uh, so a perpetual covenant between God and his people. And we were discussing kind of like, you know, in the modern church culture of today, we a lot of times will say something akin to, oh, well, that's, you know, for, you know, the everyone prior to Jesus. And now it's fulfilled. Yeah, it's been fulfilled in, in Yeshua, and so therefore no longer is applicable to us here in New Testament times. And so my question would be to that individual, if what we have, uh, what we're reading about is stated as a eternal ordinance and perpetual covenant, which means forever. If that had an end, then how can we be so sure that your eternal life that you have in Yeshua doesn't have an eventual end? Because it's the same word, right? Just to, that's once for the Shabbat and the others for your salvation. So does eternity really mean forever? Or are you mistaken about the Shabbat? Because it can't be both. It's one or the other. It, it's either you're defining the word eternal wrong there, or you're defining it wrong here. Because you're trying to use it in two separate ways. Right, so you mean this This is a quote. I think you mean this is a metaphor or a quote. Like, I think there is a New Testament quote close to that. 
Yes. So this is used as a point of argument or something, right? Well, Jesus said that, and I was um, interesting, interested in how you might approach that, because I feel like when the modern church reads that passage from Jesus about how the Sabbath was made for man rather than man for the Sabbath, I feel like our understanding of what he's saying is colored by that lens that we're looking through of 2000 years of regurgitated doctrine that, you know, isn't necessarily what scripture is actually trying to say. Right. So if you go back to that new Testament passage, that's Mark two twenty four. these, um, and it's the parochian. <sighs> it translates as Pharisees, but <laughs> kind of a, <clears throat> what's the word? Energetic. That's an emotionally charged word. In any event, they say on the Shabbat, they were passing through some wheat fields and went along, and the disciples began picking heads of grain. And these um, Pharisees said, look, why are they violating Shabbat? So I don't, you know, I know you're not asking me this, but the, the question I would ask if that question were given to me is I would say, how do you know they're violating Shabbat? Mm -hmm. You got to keep that question in mind while we talk about this. <laughs> right. Because, because, you know, if we go back to the Torah, there's not a, there's no chapter and verse that says you can't do this. All right. <laughs> you cannot bow down to idols, right? You can't make golden image, you know, gold, molten images. Um, you can't, there's a whole list of stuff you can't do. And this is not on that list. That's all I wanted to say on that. Right. And so Yeshua replies, haven't you ever read that what David did when he rose, when he and those with him, sorry, were hungry and needed food, right? Enter into the bait of Hashem, the house of God, and Evitar the Kohen, Gadol ate the bread of the, who is the, that's the Lechem Bapani, I'm pretty sure, right? Which is forbidden for anyone to eat except priests, and he even gave it to some of his companions. And then he makes this statement. The Shabbat was made for man and man not being made for the Shabbat. Right. All right. So the Hebrew rendering of this is kind of interesting. It might be useful. And he said to them, look, the Sabbath was established for the sake of really man. Way it's worded. Mm -hmm. Sabbath was was appropriated. It was it was established. It was something that was prepared for the for the benefit or for the sake of man, and not man for the you know the benefit and the sake of the Shabbat. All right, that statement is not bad. What's wrong with that? Where does that say the Shabbat ends? <laughs> That's you know what I mean? That's what I think that's the point you're making. If, well, I, if anything, like, if anything, Jesus, Yeshua is saying that this is the way it is, and it's going to continue to be this way. 
Go ahead. <laughs> well, uh, I almost feel like when he was saying Shabbat was made for mankind, not mankind for the Shabbat, uh, I, I almost feel like the Pharisees were adding extra things to exclude from Shabbat, and Jesus was saying, it's not within your jurisdiction to make that determination. It's not within your purview of authority to determine what man can and cannot do on the Sabbath. That's already been settled all the way back on Mount Sinai. God already does. Yeah, his context is that people were needing some kind of a a meal or at least a snack. They needed something. Mm -hmm. And so what he's saying to the Pharisees is Shabbat is supposed to benefit the people not the other way around, <laughs> you know. So, I mean, it becomes Im- impractical and infeasible to do this level, this level of, like, veneration or mm-hmm. something. Because why don't you care about their really, you know, how come you're not sensitive or a little bit more compassionate that they really are hungry? <laughs> you know what I mean? They really are hungry. I mean, come on. You know, keep this thing in balance. I mean, you could talk about this passage for a long time. But, yeah. I mean, th- this one in Mark, as far as what's going on Hebraically. But the original question we're working with is, in our Parsha, it says emphatically clear, the Sabbath is, the Shabbat is a fundamental element a one of the terms of the covenant i don't know how to make that clearer (laughs) that's what you meant by a perpetual covenant right right so really the the main takeaway from that is just that it is forever it is eternal it is not ever going away right so exodus 31 This is something that's really, really important to Hashem. Hashem says, go tell the people of Israel, and he puts it in the plural. That's because in the Hebrew, it's the plural. And uh, say to the children of Israel, "Um, yet my Sabbath you shall guard and keep, because it is an oath. It's a sign between you and between between me and tw- between you, excuse me. Le'edoratecha means <laughs> it is a multi-generational, perpetual, immutable, unchanging covenant. That's what, that's what those words mean. In order to know that I am yod Vavhe, the one that sanctifies you. <sighs> Some of the teaching here is that Hashem is the source of all your money. And so the blessings that you get through business and work and and engaging in commerce and everything through the six days that are just regular days are controlled. The blessing is commanded by the Holy One in in a more rigorous manner than it would be if you worked on the Sabbath day. And what you would have received. That's part of what the implied uh, terms of this covenant is. 
that's what it means by a sign. Right. It's a sign because that working of a of a bracha of a blessing for your six days of doing commerce and business and just normal everyday activity, right? Get an extra special boost that's greater than anything you could do by working on the Sabbath day. That's that's a really important point to get that's behind this passage. And it even says, it's a whole other tangent you can go on, you're to keep my Shabbat because it is set apart. And he says, it's my Shabbat. Look at that. My Shabbat. This says, guard the Sabbath in the Hebrew. It doesn't really say my. So I don't know why the translator went with my. Anyway, you shall keep the Shabbat because it is holy to you. And anybody that's like undoing it and, 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 and really profaning it. Mot um, that's anybody who treats it as ordinary must be put to death for whoever does any work on it is to be cut off from his people. Ooh, really strong words. Oh, I'm glad I don't live under that covenant. You know, like, this is what people think. You know, they read that and they have that thought, you know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we used to have that thought, too. Like, it seemed like something was very severe and very stringent when you're from the outside looking in. Let me ask this. How severe, how egregious, how harsh, how hard, how, you know, like, forcible, how tough and rigorous... Is it that you actually have to do work on seven days a week? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, that's rough too. Yeah, don't fall for that. <laughs> um, honestly, though, I mean, when when we start observing Shabbat, it's uh, it's amazing how restful the day really is, and how how much it's really improved our life just by taking that one day of rest. It's because the day since, since the creation itself has been appointed to that purpose. That's why it does work. And that answers this other question of, can you pick any day? I know there's a contingent, you know, that, that, tries to spiritualize the Sabbath and they say, well, you know, it's been fulfilled and and so I can make any day, you know, the Sabbath day. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what they say. So here's the answer to that. I want to talk about that. Yes, it's laudable. I, we give, you know, if you're, if you are a, you know, a, um, how would you call it? You know, a Sunday Christian, and you have this thinking. I think it's if we applaud that you want to take a day off per week, that you grasp like you have a shadow of the essential idea. You do have it. It's yeah. like kind of a very essential. It's a little bit of a grasp of it, and so it really depends on how spiritual you want this experience to be. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Sounded like T Ferret wanted to say something. Oh no, sorry. I oh. It so it depends on how 
it depends on how spiritual you want to be with this, right? So if you just want a very, very cursory, you know, level of benefit from the principle of Sabbath day, then just make it any day you want. But as it has been pointed out just minutes ago, experience has shown that if you respect if you respect the seventh day for the holiness that it is, it will have profound impact on your, you know, your life, your productivity, your harmony, and the shalom. So yes, it does matter which. It really depends on how spiritual you want to take it. So that's the end of that uh, quick uh, teaching there, right? I uh, I think I also would point out the the um, I feel like a lot of these things are designed to kind of encapsulate other ideas and uh, whatnot into our our like deeper psyche, our our subconscious self. Um, and in the world of Shabbat, I feel like you know a big part of that has to do with. God formed the world in the six days, and then on the seventh day he rested. So, yes, we're imitating that. But beyond that, we're also proclaiming a prophetic clock of the coming messianic kingdom. Which I know is a little far out into the eschatol, eschil, eschil, you know what I'm saying. The... Um, mystical interpretation of things but if you're let's just think for a moment about how if we are you know proclaiming this mystical prophetic clock but we've chosen day number one instead of day number seven well you're essentially claiming that the messianic kingdom's already come and gone (laughs) very important point you're making you know what i mean So, yeah, yeah, I mean, if you, it's nice that you would grasp, a person would grasp the elementary concept of one out of seven, but there is definitely deep spiritual meaning of the number seven in this context, especially for eschatology, yes, because that's a whole other topic of discussion, how the days of creation correspond to the history um, of unfolding of time. Yeah. So like we're in the year, we're in like the sixth millennium, right? We're in the sixth millennium, getting close to the end of the sixth, right? So what happens at the end of the sixth day? Well, it's a Shabbos, you know, and even it's even further echoed in the Shemitah, so you have seven years, six years, I mean, excuse me, and then you have the seventh year is a rest for the Sabbath rest for <laughs> for the land, right? Just like the coming Messianic era, it's the, seven, the seventh millennia, millennium, excuse me, right? So that, it definitely has that meaning as well. Yeah. It does. And also we've, you know, had these. Uh, I've had discussions with people that bring up this idea that, well, how do we know that 
Saturday is the actual seventh day of the week, as opposed to, you know, maybe somewhere the tracking of time got lost or something, and we were actually like, um, uh, day number one is actually day number four or whatever. And I would suggest that, well, we we want to strive to be as correct as we can be. All right. So do you? Here's a question for those people. No, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Go. Oh no, you're fine. Well, we want to be. The end of my point is here. Here's where we are right now. Do we want to be as right as we can be, or do we want to just take a shot in the dark with nothing to go on whatsoever? So the question here. Pick another day. That's what you're doing. Right. So I mean that. That question was, how do we know that Shabbat is really the correct Shabbat? Mm -hmm. Right. And maybe something got shuffled along the way. I mean, you know, after all, we could be thinking that today is uh, Shabbat and it really isn't, you know, because something somebody forgot. I mean, (laughs) I have a question for those people who think that. Do you really think like in the times you could go back to the Second Temple period? The times of the Romans, you know, controlling Israel, or you could go back to the time of the prophets. You could go back to the time of King David and Solomon, right? I mean, pick a time. How about going all the way back to Joshua and entering into the promised land? I mean, do you really picture these people as the Flintstones? (laughs) Is the Flintstones? Like, do you think that's how these people lived? The what you, I don't know. Does anybody ever? Is anybody even? My um, does anybody know what the Flintstones like the cartoon? Yeah. Right. In today's day and age, everyone has a phone to tell them what the day is, so no one keeps track of it anymore. Do you do you really think? I mean, across the board, everybody's going to lose a whole day. I mean, everybody across the whole world is all going to lose the same day all at once. <laughs> I mean, it is really an absurd notion, really. Mm-hmm. I've had this discussion before with other people who actually actually thought this. You have to you have to really question what kind of a picture do they have of life, you know? <clears throat> people knew when to plant. They knew when to harvest. <laughs> yeah. There's a there's like a an awareness of stuff like astrology and divination and that kind of thing. How, how about how about the some of the calendar work that was done by the Chaldeans and the, or the Babylonians or even for that matter, how about the Mayans and all the intricacy of the calendar stuff? I mean, do you really think those people lost days? <laughs> I mean, you know, they have such an accurate calendar. Did you ever hear of the? I mean, it's legendary, really. I know we went through it was about 10 years ago, like it was the end of the long count Mayan calendar. Yeah. <laughs> the time reckoning systems that these people had was like impeccable. And that's not even counting the Hebrews. <laughs> if, if you would study how intricate this, the lunar calendar is, the one that's used, it's called the Hillel II calendar. That's yeah. the so-called Jewish calendar, how that thing works. <laughs> How could they do this? If they're losing days, they couldn't possibly 
derived the mathematical the formulations for the for the lunar cycles and for the projection of that time onto the calendar for the year right <laughs> it even has fine tunings in it to make sure that two shabbat days don't happen in a row <laughs> i mean really it's absurd yeah i'm just i'm just pointing out some thoughts to help people if you really struggle with this idea that the shabbat somehow got lost or maybe you know the calendar everybody all slipped on one day <laughs> How about this? Try it this way. Does ancient timekeeping with the way the calendars worked and this idea go together? No, they don't. Let's uh, let me just try to do a web search, you know, just really quick on this because it it is really a preposterous and absurd idea. The Babylonians had a really, really intricate calendar, just like uh, the Maya. See if we can. I mean, can these people create these calendars if they're losing days? You know what I mean? Does it really make any sense? Right. How would they do that? How would they project the past and onto the future if they're losing days? I mean, I'm just saying it's really an insult to the mathematical work and the scientific work these people did. Mm-hmm. Oh, I feel like we have really poor generational memory and just in general as humanity, you know, and uh, the idea of being able to do things outside the context of our modern conveniences is very difficult for people to comprehend. It says the Babylonian calendar was a loony solar calendar with years consisting of 12 lunar months each beginning when a new crescent moon was first sighted low on the western horizon at sunset, plus an intercalary month inserted as needed by decree. Right, that's when the lunar months are not enough to keep up with the solar. The calendar is, calendar is based on the Sumerian predecessor is preserved in, in the Uma calendar of Shulgi, 21st century B.C., or BCE, whatever one I want to say. So, 2100 years before the Second Temple. These people are tracking time with, like, precision clockwork. This is my point. It's yeah. and, I, and I'll give the source for this. I know I'm a little preachy on this, but here's the source. And I'm, I'm not going to, like, um, budge on this, okay? Because it's a really, really... <laughs> bad idea that people need to quit thinking this from the very beginning of creation so elohim said let there be like light spots that's what marot are they're light spots right <laughs> points of light right in the rakia in the firmament of the heavens to divide between the yom and the the day and the night let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to the sky to separate the night, the day from the night. And this statement is vital right here. And they will be for signs. Well, that's the same word that's in this Shabbat verse that we've been looking at. Mm -hmm. Oats. And for appointed times and to count years or to count 
days and they count days and they count years. It says right there. It's in the creation itself, a clockwork. You understand what I'm saying? It's not it's not a coincidence that these ancients figured out how to do this. Right. Okay, so this word means for counting days, and this word means for counting years, right? What is a calendar? It is a, a day and <laughs> month and week and year ca- uh, counting device. Yeah, it's a device to count days and periods of time, months, up to years. Yeah, that's what it is. Anyway, it's in Genesis 1.14. And for anybody listening, just do a word search. Do a word search on the last one, two, three, four word Hebrew words in that verse. It'll all make sense. So, in other words, <laughs> it's the stuff of legend that these people, you know, the whole zodiac, right? And the um, <laughs> constellations. And how this stuff moves through time. Mm-hmm. It, it's all been mapped. It's been mapped into like a f- formulas to mm-hmm. be able to t- track it. Nobody lost any days. Okay. I just assure you, nobody lost any days. You got to, that's <laughs> not directed to you. It's directed to whoever thinks that. I'm going to get off this. Crazy. <laughs> yeah, that's uh that's where we're at. Well, tell them and from now on, if anybody asks that, ask them if if you were in, in the ancient times and you were designing calendars, how 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 could you? Do you think you maybe you were so busy with the calendar that you forgot what day it was? I mean, does that even make any sense? Well. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, again, it's difficult for people in today's world to be able to see how people operate without the modern conveniences that they have today. Right, so they make the assumption, and I don't know if I'm the only one that remembers the Flintstones. They think the people in Bible days were like the Flintstones. Yes, they do. Yeah. I think that is the image that comes to mind when you talk about any people group during that time frame. Just use Flintstones as a metaphor, right? Like, this is how people lived. (laughs) All right. All right, let's talk about the two cubes. Um, Okay. Do you you know where that verse is? Uh, So, no, I don't. But... um, it was a the Rashi podcast that was pointing it out, it and said that. so I'm wondering if, yeah, I'm wondering if maybe the word tablet means something other than just what comes to mind when I say tablet. You know, I, I have no idea where he got this idea from. But incidentally, send that. You got a link to that podcast. I'll start listening to that so we can improve our um, our uh, lessons here. Sure. So yeah, yeah. well, <clears throat> yeah, send that over at some time. Okay. So, um, well, 
I don't have an answer about the cubes. I have not heard that, especially it being that sounds more like a midrash to me. That's not really a something in the Torah. The uh, typically the word is tablets, and mm, tablets are like flat pieces of stone. Now, being made of sapphire, what, do you have a source on that? It's the same. I'd never heard of either of those two factors being held by the tablets until uh, I heard it on this podcast. Okay, so they, in theory, it doesn't say what kind of stone it is. I mean, it could be sandstone, granite, sapphire, could be some kind of gemstone. That's all possible. I would not rule that out, but the Torah doesn't say that. I mean, this word that we're you know, that we're studying is luach, and a luach just means like a sheet of stone. Tablet. Uh, so it's really pretty accurate to say, you know, like the pictures they show, like a bearded individual holding two tablets, you know, like Moses yes. getting... <laughs> That's not really too bad. I mean, that's really what the words mean. That's tablets. That's some other word there. That's in Exodus 35. That's something different. So what does it say in English for that word? Tablets, I thought. I am looking through... uh, uh, to see if I can find some sort of a source or something. Tables are called in the KJV. They're tables. Tables in, in oh. KJV speak. I feel like tablet was closer to the cube than tables are. <laughs> Alright, so a luach, a luach, like, you could take a sheet of, like, really thin, you know, quarter inch three eighths plywood and you know that would be like a luach it's a it's a big flat board you know of of wood (laughs) Hmm. so picture that that's the essence of what's luach this word it's not so that's why in exodus 24 12 it's saying like sheets, you know, flat sheets of stone, right? Um, I will give the tablets of stone, flat sheets of stone. Now the sapphire, I don't think that's anywhere in the Torah. It's not enough for the tablets. It's it's in that aphode in the breastplate. Remember that mm. thing. There's a sapphire in that second row. We talked about that last week. Mm-hmm. When they're talking about it, they didn't give the verse they're referring to in the Rashi, so we could look up the Rashi. <laughs> uh, That's saying there is a reference here that you were just at Exodus twenty four twelve. Yes, but I feel like they just like erased what you read and then put what they want there to be it says 
uh, Elohim said to Moshe, come up to me on the mountain and stay here, and I will give you the cubes of stone, which with the law and commandments I have written for their instruction. But you were just there, and it said tablets. Yeah, 2412. All right. Yeah, so, so you were reading a translation just now, right? What did that, what word did it use? Tables or no? Uh, cubes of stone. I will give really? you. Cubes of it says stone. cubes, really? What translation is that? Well, that's the thing. I, I don't see any notation telling me a translation, so I feel like they may have just erased what the Tanakh says and input what they wanted it to say or something. Yeah, it, it truly is the problem with translations. It's when the opinion of the translator gets a bit large. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> when the translate, you know, the opinion expands. Um, I was curious, the name of the translation you were reading from, it said that, that's all. It It's not telling me. I'm oh, looking. it doesn't tell you. Okay, so let's try, let's see what this program, this software says. We have the verse here. So let's just um, have a little fun with it. So the Spanish is, the Spanish is tablas, the tablas, you know, tablas are, it's, we have an electronic gadget called a tablet. It's a flat, you know, service thing. <laughs> Tablas, right? <laughs> who, who knew that Elohim was so high tech all the way back then? <laughs> right, I know it's better than email sending you. <laughs> Would be able to hold a lot of information. Must be a lot of gigabytes on that. Those <laughs> plenty of gigabytes on that bandwidth, right? <laughs> so one of the best ones to look. You know, let's, let's see what Young's literal has to say. Tables. <laughs> Said with a Yorkshire accent, nothing like that. Nothing, nothing like that. <laughs> nothing like that. Tablets, tables of stone. What's this one? This is a some kind of the the Webster Bible. Give you tables. All right. Where's the most imaginative, far-fetched uh, translation in this list? <laughs> NIV. NIV, right? I joke, I joke. I joke. All right. Let's see what that has to say. It's tablets right here. Let's see here. That was nah. Exodus 24, 12, oh, not 26, 24, 12. Commentary, Rashi. I'm about to remain there 40 days. Tablets of stone long. All the 613 commandments are explicitly contained in the Ten Commandments and may therefore be regarded as having been written on the tablets. Rabbi Saadia specified 
in the olive uh, or something else, which he has composed those commands which may be associated with each of the Ten Commandments. Hmm. Yeah, that's uh, all good, but the, the, the cube thing, that's... I thought maybe we could find an ancient source. I tried the um, the what's called the Latin Vulgate. Have you heard of that one? I have. The year 384, something in that range, is when it was finished. Very early. So it says tabulas, ta- tablets, tablets, lapideas, et legem. <laughs> Anyway, tabulas is what they're saying there. That's not cubes. Huh. <laughs> There's a different word for cube. I did find something on Chabad.org. Okay. Uh, tradition tells us that they were thick square blocks of stone, six handbreadths tall, six handbreadths wide, and three handbreadths deep. In modern measurements, that is about 18 inches by 18 inches by 9 inches. The sages of the Talmud demonstrate how the tables of this size, along with a few other relics, fit neatly into the Ark of the Covenant that Moses made, as described in Exodus. It is interesting to note that nowhere is there any mention of them having the rounded tops that are so common in the popular drawings of Moses, blah, blah, blah. This design (laughs) to be the invention of non-Jewish artists. Um, the material. The tradition is that both sets of table tablets were made of sapphire. As after Moses broke the first set, God revealed a large deposit of sapphire under Moses's tent. Moses used some of the stone to carve the second tablets and was permitted to keep the remainder. That's a beautiful story. I'll go with that one. That's, that makes well, sense to me. That's for the sapphire part. Remember, that's, I was, that's yeah. still saying that, you know, instead of like a one inch thick tablet, it's saying it's nine inches thick. That's kind of cube like 18 by 18 by nine. Yeah, I wouldn't use that word, though. I mean, you're right. It's a lot thicker than what it's presented in the artwork. Yeah. But. You're, you know, it's a <laughs> dense, thick, really chunky tablet. <laughs> yeah, That's what we're looking at, right? It's like the first tablet that ever came out. Actually, it was <laughs> <laughs> like the old chunky uh, laptops and stuff, <laughs> and really chunky things. Like the world's first computer. Got <laughs> a whole a whole bedroom. Old building, actually. Well, let's look at with this word luach, and I was going to try to move to a break time just a little sooner today, but let's um, see what else we can come up with on this. It appears in Exodus and in Deuteronomy. I came down from the mountain and put the chunky tablets <laughs> in the ark which I had made. And there they are, as the Lord commanded me, right? Okay, yeah. so what's First Kings? 
736 uses the same word. They're saying for on on the plates of the ledges. I think those are. Um, this is part of the. It's what's called the first temple Solomon's temple. I think that's what this passage is. There was nothing in the ark except for the two thick <laughs> tablets of stone. Ain by our own rock, Shine Lokota Right, so all we have is we do have one tradition that, that says it's really super thick. It's not really a cube, though, because cube is three dimensions are equal. It's rectangular. Oh. Right, it's a big rectangular chunky thing. Pretty <laughs> thick tablet, yeah. How much? What's those inches again? Eighteen. Eighteen by eighteen by nine. So one of those dimensions is halved. So maybe the right. So the nine inch, if you look, if you looked at it as a tablet, it was a tablet nine inches thick. No reason to not believe it. it it's 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 a very interesting um, bit of information. Yeah, I thought it was really um, interesting because it's different. I've never never heard of sapphire cube uh, tablets that Moses came down the mountain with before. So it would be like two if it was it's two nine by nine by nine cubic cubes put together. You could say that. Right. It's huh. an interesting thought. Yeah, you could. Yeah, I mean it is. It's on one side they're joined together. So you take two of them and make one out of it. You'd have that. Two cubes. But when I when I hear the word cube, you know, I mean, that's a very specific geometric <laughs> shape. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the word they use on that podcast thing. I just, you know, like, again, just thought it was kind of intriguing and weird. There's a lot in this passage that, um, as far as the commentary goes, I'm not sure how on board I am. One more thing. I'm going to go to a dictionary just to see what dictionary has to say about cube. You know, maybe I'm biased. No, I cube. think that is the correct mathematical way to define the word. All right. So it says that it's a noun. It's a solid bounded by six equal squares. The angle between any two adjacent faces being a right angle. An object either solid or hollow, having this form or a form approximating it. Right, so I don't know if two cubes together is really approximating one cube. <laughs> yeah, that would be kind of dense, really. I mean, that's pretty well approximate. All right, so I'm going to go with a uh, strict definition. All right, you just said something that got my attention. You remember? Which part? I don't know. No, it's before I asked this about the definition of cube. I want to make sure I wasn't being overly like zealous about it. 
I thought it was. In- oh, yeah. You were saying there were a lot of uh, what you can what you call it commentaries or. Uh, yeah. So there's a, a lot of content within the commentary on this week's uh, version that I'm a little uh, like how they treated Aaron in the commentaries of how he didn't necessarily want to uh, cater to the people with making of the idol and. And you le- you read the scriptural narrative of how he was so accommodating towards the people's goal and what he said about this is your God and it, it just doesn't seem to add up right. And um, this is one of those things where I don't really see any actual. It's an interesting idea. This you know, so, uh, so, uh, these cubes uh, that the tablets. Yeah. But, Right. There's not really a lot of scriptural support for sapphire cubes that contain, like even the 18 by 18 by 9, where's that at? I mean, that's, there's, there isn't really a, any evidence I can find to support that. No, it's a problem, and... <sighs> This is one of the great challenges that arises out of that the people who came before us lost the nation. So we don't have a, an interrupted, continuous history going all the way back to when Joshua led the people into the promised land. We don't have that. They instituted the nation of Israel with 12 tribes, right? And then... <coughs> If it had not fallen into idolatry and law and split the kingdom and disobedience of King Shaul and other idolatry, even with Solomon taking things apart. Right. <laughs> and finally, the invasion of the Assyrians taking the north and the Babylonians later taking the south and everything just being like discontin- discontinuous there. Right. This is one of the problems. And then being expelled into exile, into Gilus. You have to think about it. It's a big deal, really, if you try to understand some of these spiritual truths. You know, without having that foundation, this is one of the problems from, that arises. It is. And this kind of detail, you know, we have to piece it together the best we're able. Yeah. <laughs> That whole topic is something you can spend a whole a whole program on. And there were some other questions, but I'm I'm thinking about deferring these. Um, we could quickly try to answer the Zohar question. That would be fun. And it's not really so much a question as much as a briefing. Yeah, briefing. Let's do it that way. <clears throat> <laughs> Yeah, because I definitely don't know anything about it. <laughs> All right. So and the other question about the three thousand in one day and that thing. Let's. Uh, okay. So I think if you if you we were back on that question, I didn't really answer it. Um, you could have a very quick tribunal and actually carry that out. I'm not sure about that. That's why I don't. I didn't know what to say there. But the mechanic. Yeah, that I'm was sorry. background. 
Yeah, that was back on the the three thousand. This is back on the golden calf. Right. Text that says that these people, you know, were killed. Were you suggesting just real fast, yes or no, uh, that all these people are rounded up and they each get a single trial for like all of them at the same time? That would be the only way it could be done. That doesn't sound like justice to me at all. <laughs> like, if, if you're going to have a trial, you can't do a group trial like that, right? Because what if, you know, some are innocent in, within that 3,000? Oh, I see. Right. So, yeah, right. How would they ever get into that? To the Yeah. Maybe the maybe that's what they did, and the plague that killed the guilty was like they were all let off. No, because it says that they slew some, so that doesn't make sense either. No, it doesn't. The other thing that's hard is um, I mentioned that it's not in the charter of the nation. The nation hasn't been fully chartered yet. So the courts and everything that are meant to be are not fully established, right? And all of this is getting back to what I just said a minutes ago, is that losing the continuity of the original nation is making a lot of these questions harder <laughs> to answer because you have to piece it together from different clues. Yeah. Um, you do. And even, even some of the stuff that we talked about in other programs like the para aduma so that's the red heifer and they're bringing back how about the details of bringing back the third temple right <laughs> that's a real problem i mean i was going to talk about this a little just to present what's making it difficult that is losing the nation and the, the side effect of that so <clears throat> we do not have a reference like we can't go to the library of you know Jerusalem you know to go look this up <laughs> you know, so-called library of Congress in Jerusalem that not American Congress the nation of Israel Congress right that kind of a library is lost so it's a problem yeah all right so this I'm trying to get find the one about. We've done most of these questions. I, I saved the Zohar for last. <laughs> I noticed that. That's okay. Yeah, that's well. It's because it's if if you do a search on this, you know, this is a pretty much what you find. It's attributed to. And I don't remember the name, but it's like around, I want to say the year, was it? Oh, right there's the date. Uh, yeah. The, so the 1300s was exactly what I was going to say, but this stuff existed prior to that. It only became like something that was being published and talked about more at a, at a grander scale during the 1300s. Right? Uh -huh. Okay. So 
So this one's putting a date of 1200 to or 12, you know, right around 1200. Ram bam. Yeah, the ram bam. <laughs> <All right. laughs> I didn't know he was a Kabbalist. Interesting. It's a very, what's the word, furtive and clandestine history. It's really hard to get answers. That's why I saved it for last. All right. Clandestine means like, well, let's see what it says for the definition. Right. This is a word I used to describe it. It's characterized and done or executed with concealment, especially for purposes of, uh, I don't want to say all this. That's not necessarily the reason. It just means it's hidden knowledge. Hidden, surreptitiously stealth, right? That's it is, right? So um Kavad had a very good article explaining why it's legitimate. Um not seeing that tab here. I don't know what I did with that. Uh I think it's right below Marshall. Oh, never mind. Was it possibly here? Or no. Oh, it was on the other one. Okay. Yeah, the other one. And now look right underneath your date and time. Over here. That's uh, the one. Over. Oh, over. Oh, this one. Uh, yeah. That's it. Zohar. That this is Kavad. Okay. This is the one. It, it's almost like when you try to study the history, it always picks up this Moshe de Leon. That's where the that's where the histories pick up. They all do that, right? And okay. now it's in the year in the thirteen hundreds. So this is like picking up where it's already been around for a while, but its popularity begins to pick up. Right, the popularity or the like. A lot of this Kabbalah, the Kabbalistic stuff, is kind of really it's really hard to trace, and there probably are some good reasons for that. <laughs> it's like a more strict oral tradition of some kind, you know, <laughs> and then some of that makes sense. Well, let, maybe we should start with defining what the Zohar is and then go from there. It's like a Kabbalistic commentary on the Torah. That's what it is. <laughs> it is a Kabbalistic commentary on the Torah. Now, um, yeah. what what that means? And Kabbalah would be like the mystical interpretation of scripture. Yeah, right. In general, Kabbalah, Kabbalah is dealing with the esoteric. Let's see what this this thing has to say. It's going to be a very basic introduction. So the Zohar, which is a Hebrew word that means radiance, is a foundational work in the literature of mystical thought and Kabbalah. So, and this is going to sound like an echo in the room. It is a group of books, including commentary on the mystical aspects of the Torah. Right? So I think I call it a Kabbalistic commentary of the Torah. That's what it has. And the scriptural interpretations, as well as material on mysticism, mystical cosmo, 
Joni in mystical psychology. The Zohar contains discussions of the nature of God, the origin and structure of the universe, the nature of souls, redemption, and relationship to ego or of ego to darkness and the true self to the light of God. <laughs> that stuff's all Kabbalistic. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the best thing to do, and if you really have an interest, is to find a site that has it and, and just take a look at it. It's like, it is truly like hyper-mystic, mystical. The major themes of the Zohar include the nature of Hashem and of the universe and the creation in relationship of God to the world through the spherot, which we have talked about just briefly, the spherot, those are the like the channels of of divine attributes that connect God to the rest of the creation. And the nature of evil and, the, and sin, the revelation of the Torah, the commandments, holidays, prayers, rituals, and symbolism and the priesthood, the experience of exile and the life. <laughs> and it says a much more. Which is really comical to me. The Zohar is framed as a narrative um, of wandering mystics headed by the Grand Master Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Right. That name should have appeared in this somewhere. There it is, right there. The question of the authorship of the Zohar has interested scholars and secular academics alike, those who believe that the Zohar is indeed an authentic document of the teachings of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, the Rashbi, generally agree that part but not all of the Zohar was written by Rashbi. The sections of the Zohar that are from Rabbi Shimon himself are described as the first Mishnah, apparently written while hiding in a cave from the Romans. Oh, interesting. That's very interesting because I was talking about the Roman control of Israel, who sought right. to execute him for derogatory statements he had made against them. All right, so it gets even more, um, what's the word, thick. The, the plot is amazing. Okay. Here are, we're talking about the Sefirot, Keter, Chochmah, Vina, Chesed, Din, Tiferet, Netzach, Chod, Yesod, and Shechina. All right. Well, that's a nice overview, but I was looking for the actual, this is it, this is it right here. I've seen this before. <laughs> well, you're getting some encouragement right here. It says the Zohar is for everyone. <laughs> about that i don't know that i would recommend <laughs> it to everyone and the reason is because you don't know and it'd be easy for someone unprepared to go in reading something and coming away with is this a torah portion yes i looked up the zohar for our current torah portion and this is a commentary on the mystical of the half shekel, right? That's what this oh, is. Wait, wait, wait. So I can I can look up the Torah portion and get specific types of commentary based on the type of commentary I'm looking for. 
Well, yeah, like I did Kitsi Sa. That's our current. Right. Person. Yeah, and feel free to do this. It's not. I don't think it's going to hurt anything. No, I just I didn't realize I could. That's. Yeah, I know it's. It's pretty. You know, go ahead. No, that's it. That's it. Just I didn't realize I could. Is all. Yeah, so it's it has like, all the tour portions, right? See that? Yeah. There, there's a Zohar for it. That's what I was saying. So the original kind of rough approximate draft answer I gave was that it is a Kabbalistic commentary on the Torah. See that? Maybe that picture is a little clearer now because, you know, the, it, there's the Torah portion and you can go over here and click on this. Is uh, Sef- does Safaria have the Zohar on it? I think it's in there somewhere. Oh, you know, that's a great question. Kabbalah. Yeah, it does. It does. <laughs> would it show up like if I'm scrolling through reading the Torah portion would it, and I click on a verse, would it show up in the list of, I guess it'd be under you know, Terry, wouldn't it? I don't it? know that they have those mapped like that. Oh. But. You know, that's a great question, like the rabbinic commentaries. I haven't seen it. Huh. Okay. But, you know, if we're in Parshat Kitisa, and these one, two, or two, four, six, mm, 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 12, 13, 40, 15 different, like, sections, it should correspond to these 15, well, that's in 12. So there's an approximate correspondence between these and these 187B. So, yeah, I haven't really spent a lot of time looking at this, but um, let's read what it says about the half checkout. Okay. It says, says, um, Raya Mechemna, that's a Aramaic. <laughs> There is a commandment to give half the shekel after which the shekel of after the shekel of the sanctuary. He asks, "What is the half shekel?" He answers, "It is like a half a hin, which is vav, which is placed between the two ches, the stone with which to weigh is a yud. A shekel is twenty gera." Refers to Yud Vav Dalit. That's a Yod. And the rich shall not give more. Refers to the central column, the Zeir Anpin. They should not give more than 10. And so we have learned in the Sefer HaYetzira, the Book of Formation. I've got that. Tenth, yeah, that's <laughs> pretty amazing, isn't it? The 10 Sefirot of Nothing. 10, not 11, and the poor shall not give less, refers to the righteous, that is, Yesod. He must not give less than 10, as is said in the Book of Formation, 10 and not 9, then a half shekel, which is 10. So they're pointing out that there is this spiritual, like, similarity in the Sefer Yitzira to this section of the Torah is talking about the, the half shekel is not, remember I mentioned that earlier, 
the poor doesn't give less, the rich doesn't give more. It's all the same. I kind right. of stressed that in, there in the earlier part. That's because it's a really important point. And it's drawing a parallel between that. And the Book of Formations. Right, in the Book of Formations, right? Okay. Well, we sort of got a sketch of that. So it seems that the author of the previous paragraph was Rabbi Shimon, and the faithful shepherd said, You are in heaven, you are loved by your master, therefore it is no wonder that all these precious words come from your mouth. For if one is a king or a prince, there is no wonder. His table is full of gems and treasures and full of lights. For anyone else, this would be a wonder. He said to him, Blessed are you, faithful shepherd. From now on, you speak for those above and below have come to hear. He said, finish your words. I have nothing more to say for the time being. You speak. All right, so I have no idea what that was talking about. (laughs) (laughs) What's that? So sometimes the Zohar Zohar wanders off and tells these really interesting stories, right? And that's one of them. What is that? Uh, Zohar.com? Zohar.com, yeah, that's what it is. How interesting. Yeah, it's not something I would um, recommend to everyone for everyday reading, because I don't don't know that I'm necessarily ready to be reading out of the esoteric and everything, but it it is quite intriguing. It's it's a very, very, um, like, spiritually energized text. You can, you can be sure of that. <laughs> yeah. This is another one of those stories. So Rabbi Yoshi and Rabbi Chia were traveling. And while they were walking, it became dark, and they sat down. While they were still sitting, dawn began, began to light up. They got up and went on, said Ravi Chia, see the east has lit up. Now all those inhabitants of the east of the mountains of light are bowing to this light that illuminates in the place of the sun before it emerges over the face of the earth and worship it. Many worship the sun after it comes out. They worship this light of the breaking dawn, capitals, and call this light the deity of the illuminating jewels and they swear by the deity of the illuminating jewels that's like you know this is like idolatry 101 here. <laughs> yeah isn't the breaking dawn never mind go on yeah there is a reference to that so i don't we don't have time to get into that right now but yeah there is there there's a sort of a hint of that in one of the prophets anyway so anybody listening this is not something you should be doing this is a commentary on what people do and what's in the world this is uh, idolatry that's what that's about (laughs) sun worship i should have known that right and how that pertains to the parsha maybe because of the golden calf or something 
and the idolatry there. <laughs> Can't answer that. So anyway, it is a it is stories, it's different like parables and things. Yeah. And I, I think there's a whole art to learn to reading it and knowing how to read it. But it doesn't it doesn't mean we can't read it. I'll rephrase that. There's an art to knowing how to understand what it is you're reading. Yeah, that that's a good way to sum up why I don't think it should be recommended for everyone, because there is a specific way to understand it. And without that that foundation, then reading it will just either you'll try to make sense out of something that you're incapable of making sense out of, or you know, it just it won't necessarily have a positive effect in your life. They are the mixed multitude. They were Ludim and Kushim and Kaftorim and Togarim, Togarmin. Who are called mixed multitude? They were Egyptian and traveled from Egypt. And if they were a mixed, a mixture of many nations, it would have said, and a mixed multitude went up also with them. I thought it did say that. A mixed multitude went up also well. I thought it does say that. <laughs> So why would it say that it would say actually does say, you know what I mean? Like Exodus twelve thirty-eight. But it does say that. Well, if nothing else, the takeaway from this is that we talked about this from the very beginning, is that there are many levels of under of it's been said that there are seventy levels of interpretation. So you have and then we talk about the four main categories, the Peshat, the um, Ramaz, the Hint, the Drosh, the Homiletic, and then the Sod, right? So this is, if nothing else, it tells you that there's a lot of knowledge in the Torah. Right. That's what it means. Sure. 1238. And just because we may be limited in our insight and understanding on this. That doesn't mean it isn't there. So, you know, uh, a mixed multitude went with them. So I don't I don't really understand why they're saying that it would say. Well, actually, it does say. <laughs> right? If they were a mixed, mix, a mixture of many nations, it should have stated so. And a mixed multitude went <coughs> with them. Does not mention the names of the nations. All right, so that's a. We're gonna have to stop on this. <laughs> you know, again, the big takeaway is. Is Shemot the Hebrew word for Exodus? Yeah, the book of Exodus. That's what that is. I see. Okay, I'm there. So. All right. Yeah, that's. Probably getting time for another break. So I think we've covered the questions. At least we we did our best. Indeed. <laughs> Going to go ahead and stop the screen share if I can find that.
Shabbat Shalom, everybody. Have a good week, and we'll see you next week. Next week. In place. Shavuot Tov. Shavuot Tov.